siblings and coworkers, parents and supervisors. We all have people in our lives with whom it can be hard to get along. And even a good relationship has its rough spots. Join us as we take a kingdom approach to relationships, Heart Smart, a practical guide to relating like Jesus. So we've had this series here on relationships. And we've talked about how uh, we have to always be getting all of our life worth, significant security, and sense of being loved from, from, from Jesus Christ, our core need for that. Otherwise, we go into relationships hungry, and instead of feeding the relationship, we feed off the relationship, and a lot of dysfunction results from that. And we've talked about, uh, uh, Sue talked about how the brain is wired, uh, the brain rain, right? And, and how to notice when your, your amygdala is getting activated. And we, we talked about, she said, he heard about the, the issues uh, that, that relate to communication. And Brianna talked about forgiveness, the need to let go of stuff. And then last week we talked about difficult people, or better, relationships that are difficult with people. Um, because always, there's always two involved in this. So what we're doing today... This is where the rubber hits the road, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. This is what's happening here this morning. Uh, we're going to be applying all of this to scenarios that you folks have sent in. And thank you guys uh, who sent in these, these stories and asked questions around them. Uh, so we're calling this Dear Abby. Because uh, I and a panel of esteemed experts are going to be uh, addressing these things. So panel, would you come up here? Sue, where are you? Kevin's here. There you are. There, there you are. Uh, this is Sue Crowd Kramer. Uh, yes, relational mind person par excellence. Sue. Uh, yeah, she's just such a blessing to us. And Kevin Callahan is uh, head of Sojourners. Um, but he's also been, at one point, the head of the care department. He's been a therapist. He's been a missionary. Uh, he's been, you know, I, 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 I flew, flew jets, right? And he wore a rocket to the moon. He has everything, except, except preach. Right. It's, he doesn't That's much right. But he's kind of preaching here this morning. So uh, what we're going to do, uh, we have looked at all these questions. Uh, oh, by the way, every uh, service deals with a different set of questions. And the first two have had some really good some really good stuff. So we encourage people to get online and listen to the other two uh, services. Uh, because the questions for this service are pretty boring, actually. So get, get the other ones. No, no, they're, they're good. They're really good. Uh, but uh, yeah, to get a full or kind of you know, benefit from this, uh, check out the other um, services as well. Anything else I need to, as a prelude? I think we're good yes. to go. Dive in. Yes. What? Just the fact that we've generalized these. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You give the speech. Sure. I did it the first two services. Go. So we, when we got the letters, we wanted to make sure we were um, protecting people's uh, anonymity and so forth. So we have pared them down a little bit and generalized them. So just so you know, there might be 100 people hearing this message who think, my spouse wrote that about me. Right. You could relax. It probably wasn't. However, if you are finding some truth in it for yourself, we're going to invite you to take that in. Think about it. Play with it a little bit and see if maybe there is some truth in it for you. All right? But just know that the chances of it was actually your spouse or family member doing it is slim. Very slim. And we'll take turn reading the, the uh, letters and... Um answering them, and, and while we've all looked at these, we haven't prescripted, you know, someone giving a speech, so uh, we'll see how this goes. I'll jump in. Yeah. Take it away. Cool. Let me go. So I'll read the first one. Okay. Here it is. My spouse is an amazing person whom I love. The challenge is she suffers from untreated depression and anxiety. There are things she could do to manage her situation, but she won't do them. And when she's suffering, her, disorder, her disordered life is very challenging for myself and my family. How can I continue to keep my self-confidence and joy in life 
as well as help our family not get caught up in the craziness and stay connected to the truth about love in the situation. Yeah, I'm going to jump right in on that one. If you guys jump in too, whenever you feel like it. But Talking at the same time, that's what they do on, on Fox News. I don't want to do that. Yeah, all right, well, we're going to Fox. Um, yeah, this is a tough situation. And, you know, as both a pastor and a therapist over the years, depression is one of the biggest issues that I've seen just constantly coming across my path in individuals and families. And something like 7% of the population, the adult population in the U.S., struggles with um, depression, major yes. depression. Wow. And, um, you know, the, in terms of folks that are on disability, the single biggest category of adults on disability are also folks with major depression. So it's a huge issue. We'll be probably not addressing, you know, there's also a lot of other major mental health issues that affect relationships that came in our letters, but this one about depression is very representative. So I just, first of all, want to say to the, the person that wrote this letter and any others that have this situation, we just have a lot of compassion for this, this person and this family. And for the family members, um, what this husband is saying is that, you know, the wife suffers from untreated depression and... Um, there's things she could do to manage this, her situation, but she won't. First thing the family needs to know is that, you know, this, this wonderful wife didn't choose this. The depression, other mental illnesses are things that people don't choose. It's just a fact of living in a fallen world in a fallen, fallen war zone situation. And so the first response is always compassion. And how can you as family members learn as much as you can about the different mental illnesses, in this case, depression? There's a lot of stuff online. There's great books out there. There's books written by folks in this situation who have family members struggling with these kinds of things. So learn about it. Pray for your loved one. Just have compassion for them. Um, but the biggest thing that's a sticking point here for this person is that there are things that the wife could do to manage her depression and she won't do it. That's also, unfortunately, a very common pattern where folks with a diagnosis or with a mental illness aren't necessarily taking steps to get the help that they need. And the thing with depression is that by definition, depression is a, a disorder of motivation. You don't have energy. You don't have a lot of hope. And so trying, to, trying things that might be helpful is, is, a, is a real big problem. So I would just encourage the family members to just find whoever's in the family might have the most credibility or leverage with this mm -hmm. wife. Maybe it's the husband, maybe it's one of the kids, maybe it's an in-law or another relative that could just encourage her and then try to help her to consider things like depression is very treatable for a lot of folks. Um, there's great medication out there. There's great psychotherapy approaches that have been found to help a lot of people out. And so if the family members can just help this loved one, this, this wife, to consider getting that kind of help and trying it. Um, there's, for those, if, if she's still not willing to, and um, it just kind of goes on and on, the, the writer just said, you know, how can we help our family not get caught up in the craziness and stay connected? And there's a great organization out there in, in the, across the country, but in particularly in Minnesota as well, NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, has an awesome website. They have a listing of support groups for family members of folks struggling with mental illness as, such as this. Talk to other folks in your situation and get ideas from them. How can you cope? How can you live with this kind of thing? We also here at Woodland Hills have a professional therapy referral list. Um, we have lay counselors here. We have support groups, even a depression support group in the care ministry. So just encourage this family, uh, this husband, to just kind of look into those options. I don't know if you guys have anything else to add. Well, a few of the thoughts I had also were just the idea that, you know, we learn from our environments. So the kids may be getting some influence here that's not altogether helpful, which is what the letter says is a bit of a concern. So there's things like teaching your kids resilience. Because yeah. resilience is a learned skill, and it's not something we're all born with or have naturally. And in a tough environment like this, sometimes it needs to be taught very intentionally. 
So how do you teach kids and even yourself to be a bit more resilient? The other thing, um, just obviously we want to pray, but it's around maybe for some wisdom, maybe for some support from people outside the family that, you know, could surround, come in, help out the family that's, you know, set behind and sort of struggling. Very good. Sometimes I think um, when uh, folks are resistant to sort of traditional therapy and things like that, uh, you might explore some other alternatives. Uh, Like Kevin mentioned some books. Maybe that's something you could read together, you know, yeah, and excellent. kind of be a, participate in the healing process. Um, there's things you can do to sometimes alleviate some kinds of depression just by going on walks together, you know, yes. making the time together, or some kind of exercise together. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things can help kind of alleviate. And the only other thing I'd add is um, try not to spin it in a totally negative way. I, I, I don't want to say put on rose-colored glasses and see the world is all wonderful. Uh, you know, these situations can really suck, but, but in everything, God is at work. And we're, we need to remember that. And I don't think he ever wills this, but he uses, he can use things like this. So be looking for God uh, and how God might be using this to teach you, form you, and, and you know, bring good out of it. Because you want to be participating with God when he's in that process. Excellent. There's good news even in bad news. Awesome. I think I'm going to read the next one. You guys Go ahead. Ready? Um, so this is our, our second letter. I suffered abuse as a child. I've taken many steps to heal the wounds and have made much progress. What I still struggle with, though, is how to connect with my family. They have not changed, and they don't acknowledge what they did to me. But I still want the relationship repaired and healed. Logically, I know this probably won't happen, but I can't stop wanting it to be possible. What should I do? That sounds like a suit question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, first of all, you know, just in reading this letter, I just want to give kudos to this person who wrote in. Yeah. clearly has done a lot of work repairing and healing for herself. And this is a very challenging situation and unfortunately far more common mm-hmm. in our culture than certainly God would have been excited about. Uh, so number one, stay strong in the healing that's happened. Don't let that backslide because yeah. I think that that's a potential danger. It also sounds as though from what we've got in this letter, this person's done a great job of forgiveness which is such a critical and important yes. part of the healing process and keeping yourself whole and together. Mm-hmm. I think what they're looking for, though, is reconciliation. Yeah. And reconciliation has to be a two-way street. You can forgive someone one way, but you need two-way in order to have reconciliation. So I think part of this is going to be really managing expectations. What's realistic in a situation like this? Mm-hmm. Are the other players involved? Are they not involved? Um, because when you get to uh, you know, this part of it, you need to just make sure you don't backslide by trying to help so much pull them out. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Good. Yeah, I would just jump in on that too. I think a yeah, great point about reconciliation being a different phenomenon than forgiveness. And I think also, as I imagine, you know, if I, I remember working with a lot of different folks in different situations, there's oftentimes I love this person's um, hopefulness for change that... You know that she's he or she is this anyway has pursued healing um, and worked through forgiveness and still wants the relationship healed. So there's a lot of great hope there, um, hope for change. But sometimes change is outside of our control, and we can do all the things that are, that are within our power to do that can help us change, but it might not change the relationship. So this person really wants the relationship healed and changed. And so I'm glad that they're trying to do everything they can in their power. But at some point, um, if, it's, if it's not making any difference, 
it might become a futile effort. And so acceptance at that point, a radical acceptance of the relationship as it is, and saying, mm-hmm. well, what, what can I change inside of me? Expectations, perhaps. Right. Um, how can I relate um, in a chosen way towards them um, and not expect um, unrealistic things back from them that they're not offering, that they're not prepared to give? Um, and so I think there's just this balance between yes. pushing for change, working for change, hoping for change, but also just accepting at some point, well, this may be the way it is. And grieving the loss, I so think that's an important thing because mm-hmm. it would be a very sad thing to have not had the childhood you wanted and then still not have the healed relationship right. in adulthood. So that's a grieving process of just letting go and, and, and being willing to accept things as they are. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but, but I, I've known a few cases where the person so wants to have a reconciled family and they have a kind of a dream of what a family should be and so they want their family to be that that even though they've, they've you know, forgiven uh, and they let go and they've done healing work and all that but the process of keeping on banging your head up against an immovable force uh, starts to make you angry and, and discouraged and sometimes that brings up all the old stuff again yeah. right. uh, and, you know, and, and so they have to so it some people are just tormented by a dream. You know, you've seen Ozzy and Harriet, and that's the family you want. The thing is, is that at some point, I mean, it's really good to, as long as there's hope, you'd be pressed towards it. But at some point, as Kevin said, um, you have to say, this is an apple tree, not a pear tree, so stop trying to get pears from it. Yeah. Uh, you'll just keep on frustrating yourself. You'll still love them, but love them in their, for all their faults and as they are, because banging your head up against it is just going to do more harm. Well, I think it also speaks to the whole need for community. Like, why do we want our, mm, our yes. kingdom community? You know, family of choice versus... Well, that, that's, yeah. see, that, that's another thing. At some point, yeah, you have a, a very normal, natural desire there to be part of this, this group. Uh, and if that's not going to happen, then be asking yourself the question, are, is there, can you transfer that need for community onto others? Get involved in a kingdom community, which, in, it's, biblically speaking, is to take priority over nuclear families if the nuclear families aren't kingdom families. Jesus said, here are my brothers and mothers and sisters. And, and so uh, get that need for community met that way. Good. Let's move on. Any other thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Let me take a stab at one. All right. This problem spans over many years. We have put considerable time, energy, and prayer into finding a solution. But to date, we haven't been able to make much progress. The issue is a family member that is spiteful, angry and manipulative. The family member is on medication that is most likely affecting his behavior. However, it's bigger than that. The person refuses to talk to or see any of the extended family, but still sends scathing, caustic messages to all of us. The messages often assign blame and leverage guilt about supposed wrongdoings. This person refuses to allow us contact with his children which is punishment for the supposed wrongdoing. As a family, we consistently ascribe love and worth to this person in spite of their behavior. Is there a way to be assertive and not let him take advantage of us while still showing him Christ's love and forgiveness? Yikes. Great question. I, I love the fact that, and the first thing I want is to honor his family for doing the right thing in terms of yes. continuing to love them and ascribe worth yeah. to them. Uh, it's the only way to keep from getting sucked into the undertow of whatever venom's coming your way. And so this person is clearly sending out all sorts of nasty stuff. And to make this resolve that you're not going to you know, get involved in the tit-for-tat game, uh, that you're just going to continue to love them, pray for them, ascribe worth to them, that is, 
Paul said, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is what he's talking about. Um, there's always a, a, a tendency to get sucked into it, uh, and then you're being defined by the situation. Uh, but when you can continue to love, you're bringing the kingdom into that situation. So uh, that, right off the bat, I'd say that's the right thing to do. The other thing is, I don't know what this wrong is, and here, you know, it's, every situation is different. But this person at least perceives some wrong being done to him or her. And um, so I, I think that you know, the, a, a good next step would be to go, probably not the whole family at first, but go one-on-one and say, what is it that we've done wrong? And uh, even if it appears silly to you to you know, do whatever you can to say, I'm sorry about that, uh, to try to bring some kind of reconciliation here uh, and just kind of humble yourself before them. Um, and then maybe to have the whole group there. This might actually turn into an intervention of sorts, but to have the group come in and, and to try to repair that whole thing. Finally, if that doesn't work, um, if everything just seems to be an impasse, um, then I, you have to be creative about how you can stay, keep an influence into the, the kids' lives. There's some kids involved in this apparently, and uh, you know, maybe through social media or some way try to exercise an influence there. Yeah, I'd like to add to a little bit of what, what you said there, Greg, about you know, if somebody in the family has maybe a closer relationship to this person or has an inroad, if they could somehow uh, be able to just communicate, um, like you were saying, that mm-hmm. how were you wronged? And you know, this, this concept of um, really being able to empathize with a person who f- has intense emotions about something. And empathy is the ability to really enter into the other person's experience and to say, well... What's it like to be them? And, and why, why is she feeling so angry? Or why is he feeling so angry? And you know, were there things that may not have happened the way he's talking about it, but if I was in his situation, it might have seemed that way to me, and I can understand why he'd be so angry, etc. So empathy is this imaginative entry into the world of the other, the ability to just say, as I listen to you speak, I'm imagining being you, and wow, I'm starting to feel angry. And then, I, and then you feed that back to the person mm. and say, well, I can understand how you'd be angry. And oh, so you're really, really... Uh, upset about this because this happened and you don't have to the thing about empathy and validation is you don't it doesn't have to be true you don't have to really agree with the thing Um, it's really just entering into the other person's perception and it's not necessarily about facts it's about their experience and when a person feels like somebody understands they are much more likely to be open and receptive they're much more likely to start to be flexible and so it probably would be good for a family member to be able to try and do something like that, somebody who might have a little more leverage or a little more of an inroad. Um, it seems like this person has already shut most of them out, um, but if there's a key strategic person who's able to enter in and, and just empathize, validate, and understand, that could bring some walls down. Do you have any thoughts about whether there might be more other problems with this person? Because it does say they're on medication. Yeah, and so this could be a person we don't know if there's, you know, obviously there's a medication, so might be a physical ailment of some kind, but it could be a mental health issue as well. We don't know what that is, but if it's a mental health issue and they're on medication, that's a good thing. But without knowing what the mental health issue might be, um, it, it's hard to say what, but that certainly could be something that's blocking yeah. um, them, their willingness to see or, or hear or talk to the family. So one of the thought I did have about this is, you know, we're, we do want to work with the other person to the degree that we can, but what happens when whatever we're doing doesn't yeah. change that person, it doesn't make the impact we're looking yeah. for. So one of the things I might recommend or suggest for the family who clearly has come together and wants to help this person, just be really careful about what they're 
internal group talk is. Because yeah. if these scathing mm -hmm. letters are going out, there's a good chance that they're doing a little bit of negative talk amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. Did you get the latest email or did you hear the latest message? And going back to a little bit of the brain stuff, yes, yes. when we repeat these negative stories over and over, number one, it attacks our emotional system where we're going to now take this all emotionally as opposed to being able to separate it a little bit. And the other thing is the more times we repeat it, if it tweaks our amygdala and we trigger, we now start to believe this stuff happens all the time. Mm -hmm. So the question is how many scathing letters are there or messages have there been versus how many times did we talk about it and repeat it. So could the family come up with maybe some kind of a, a common agreement that go. when one of these come, we're not going to share the details of it. We're going to maybe get together and pray and just ascribe yeah, unsurpassable worth to them as opposed to repeating the negative stories. Yeah, excellent. And, and that just reminded me too as well of just you know, here we are at a church and hopefully you know, this person is a member of the church here or a podcaster and we can't say enough about the importance of prayer. It's not like it's a guarantee that that would make a difference. But we teach a lot here about the reality of spiritual warfare and mm -hmm. the spirits and the systems that are out there that affect such things. And um, who knows to what degree that this loved one is sort of being held and locked into this negativity and this anger because of a spiritual warfare dimension. So I'd really encourage this family, even if there's just one person who's a, a believer and who believes in the power of prayer and spiritual warfare, just to consider fasting and consider just gathering some friends around for regular prayer for this person. And I think the praying as a family together, you talked about how the negative script, the, the negative sort of ruminating with each other about this person just ramps that up and increases yep. negativity and mm -hmm. increases our frustration. But prayer kind of reverses that. If we're gathering together as a family and praying for this loved one on a regular basis, prayer helps us have God's heart towards the people, um, let alone helps perhaps bring some you know, power and resources of God into the situation. So I can't stress enough just mm -hmm. the, the urgency of prayer and spiritual Situa Situations like this really are... are Unfortunate, but they're great kind of testing uh, grounds for, for your, your kingdom commitments yeah. and your kingdom yes. character. Because it is so hard. Think about it. When you've been wronged. You're getting these zingers. They're outlandish. You get together with other people who have been getting these zingers, and they're outlandish. And you, there's a, your fall of nature wants to feel vindicated at their expense. Can you believe what she said? I, I, this is all, I, I can't believe this. this is, and then, oh, yeah, well, look what she, she sent me. And it just builds. And it, it, a part of it feels good. It's like, ah. Oh, Okay, I'm not alone. Right. You know, you're sharing this misery, but that is exactly what's going to be doing the damage. And so it's a, it's a, it's a decision to crucify yourself. That means saying no to that desire to get vindicated and to take the high road and love the person keep praying for them. Talk and I'll get one little plug in there for gratitude because we know that when you go well, into a state Joy. of gratitude, you send different chemicals in your That's system right. that put you in a state of well-being. So I'm when so you want to complain... I'm so thankful for her. I'm really thankful <laughs> for her. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Now, Susan's been doing this for five years, you said, and that yeah. get gratitude, practice yes. gratitude. Yeah. Practicing joy. Made you a joyful, yeah. joyful person. Yeah. She used to be so negative and just I, nasty, <laughs> and oh my gosh, we used to talk about her all the time, and that's just so joyful. <laughs> okay. Why don't you read Okay, I, I'll read this next one. Person says, I have three children. Two of them have learned the value of a dollar, but one cannot rub two pennies together. Never got that metaphor, right? <laughs> Uh, she's always poor, and we as parents keep helping. Not a lot, but we help her. What would Jesus want to tell me how to help her? 
He wants to be Jesus. <laughs> well, we'll let Jesus be Jesus. But Stay away, like Jesus. Take a swing at this one. So, yeah, I, I have three kids, too. and so, But mine are teenagers, so they're not out of the nest yet. But this one makes me think, well, gosh, what if this is my situation in 10 years where... You know, we all worry about our kids not quite launching and being able to be on their own two feet. So I have a lot of sympathy and, and compassion for this family, this, this, these parents. Um, but apparently two of them have been able to get on their feet, and the third one hasn't. And you know, we don't know enough from this little vignette. It's one of the shorter ones, enough information to know, well, why, what's the difference between that third one? Why did the two seem to do just fine and the third one? So it could be differences in temperament. I have three kids, as I mentioned. You who have multiple children, you can see this. Some, some of your kids are just obviously very different than others. Some of them just seem to know how to think. My middle child is only 17, is way beyond my oldest child in terms of her independence and her functioning and her goal setting and decision making and things like this. So I'm not sure if it's an issue like that where she just needs a little more time. You know, there's a lot of uh, phenomena out there where it seems like kids take longer to get out and get independent. Some of that has to do with the economy and who knows what the rest of it has to do, but there's the boomerang generation and folks that come back because they're not stable yet. There's also folks that just seem to need a little bit more time. So my question for this, these parents would be just, you know, I don't know what uh, the, the thing that's holding her back is. It could be that she just hasn't learned certain skills yet. Um, and, and again, some folks figure these things out on their own, but some really just need more focused time helping them learn things like budgeting and just setting goals for themselves and just being financially responsible. So maybe she just needs a little bit more work from the parents to help learn those kind of skills. Um, it, the question I had when I read this was, is she able to work? Um, is she capable of working? Does she have a, a steady job? Um, and if, if she's not able to work, she might uh, need some extra help as well from, from the parents. Um, is she working a job that doesn't give her a livable wage? Because it's a lot of the jobs out there, it, we all know the market isn't great, so maybe she just can't find a job that allows her to be on her two feet. She's paying her rent, but she can't pay her other bills. So those are questions I have. So the first response would be sort of to say, well, what help does she need? Does she need extra skills and extra encouragement and extra time from her parents? But the other side, though, is with young adults, sometimes we as parents will do things for our children, and we might do a little too much for them. And if we find ourselves being a little bit too helpful with paying their bills or you know, letting them stay at home without paying rent or covering their car expenses or things like this, sometimes that just prevents our children from actually learning the things they need to learn because they're not running into or bumping into the natural life consequences. So experience is one of the best teachers. And so if you might lose your apartment next month because you haven't, you've partied away all your money, then you know, you're going to maybe learn the lesson the hard way. And sometimes parents have to take that step back and it could be the case that this, these parents are maybe shielding their daughter a little bit from some real-life consequences that would be maybe the best teacher for her. Again, as I mentioned, some kids don't need to learn it that way. They figure it out. Others need to maybe learn from experience or learn the hard way. As I was listening to this scenario and thinking about it, the prodigal son story came to mind. And, of course, that's a story of a parent, a loving parent, the perfect parent, who stepped back and allowed the son to just kind of go his way and sort of hit rock bottom. And I imagine that father was just aching, but he had gone to the very edge uh, of, the, of the extent he could as a father to love his son but not cross the line into controlling his decisions or shielding him from his choices. And so he just waited. He prayed and he waited and he allowed that son to sort of experience reality. And at some point, that was what that son needed in the prodigal son story. He woke up. It says that he came to his senses. 
and then he came back, and his father then was available. So what I'd say to father or parents in this situation is sometimes you need to let them go, let life hit them, stay on the edge looking, waiting, and praying, and then just be available when they come back and ready, ready to help. So. Well, I'm just wondering for you with children, could you let your child end up on the streets? I mean, yeah, how far could question, you yeah. go? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough. Um, or it, it's up to Andy even more, uh, what if they have your grandkids? Yes. Yeah. Uh, then it gets really, really dicey. And so uh, that's where I think I mean, it's, a, it's just a tough balance. Uh, you do what you can to you know, teach them, instruct, and bring them yeah. as far as you can. But at some point, letting them suffer the consequences. And do what you can to spare the grandkids from those consequences. You know, maybe say, okay, they can stay at our house, but not you. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. But it's tough love, and yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's not easy. I really am empathetic with this because I have a son who has got disabilities. And who can't manage money or make money or anything. So we have to support him. Uh, always try and encourage him to be as independent as possible. But we live in that tension. And, and you know, and, and since people change and grow, it, it, it changes. But are we, you know, is this a disability that we need to be legitimately, you know, coming around to support because he can't help it? Or is he just being lazy, in which case we're enabling? And we, it, we always live in this, and Shelly and I always assess it differently. <laughs> I'm always saying, he could do a little more. She's like, we can't help it. Yeah. Yeah, so welcome, welcome to my world. And sometimes yeah. that's good. It just Yeah, it, is. it, it ends up, we yeah. meet in the middle. And the, the truth sometimes is in that middle space. Just for this couple and any others in this situation, we have some awesome ministries here. We have a good sense budgeting Ministry Mary Anderson heads that up, and she has classes that are available. They also have trained Good Sense counselors that work one-on-one with folks. So maybe this, these parents could sit down with a Good Sense counselor or talk their daughter into coming to the class with them if it's a budgeting issue or just the need for skills like that. But um, we don't, don't have enough information to know what's the, what is the key problem here, but um, try to do our best here to kind of speak to it. Right. So the one last thought I had on this is, again, just thinking about what... What have the parents been doing all along that might have created some core beliefs as well? So has there been a constant message of, you're so bad with money, can't you handle money, don't you know how to take care of yourself? So depending on those kinds of messages, with enough of them at some point in time, that can turn into a core belief for the child that goes, well, clearly I'm just bad with money. And that's then something that would probably need a little counseling or something to talk that through and change that core belief. So that might have been installed without intention. Absolutely. Just out of frustration, those kind of comments getting popped up. Especially if the other ones are good at it, and this right. person's not early on. Then yep. It's, yeah. Yep. So just something to consider is what's your, what's your talk? What are you doing? I'll read this next one. Um, one of you can take it. What should I do? I left an abusive man, but we have a child together. My ex is unrepentant and unaccountable regarding the abuse. However, he has some good points, and he still tends to pursue me. I want the three of us to spend time together so our child gets to experience time as a family. Occasionally, I find myself being sucked back into feelings for him. What should I do? Stay away? If I do that, our child won't experience true family. If he is around us, though, what can I do to love him, stay safe, and make the best childhood and family for my child? I can't be the only person with this problem. Help! Uh, Well, let's see, I would... I guess the first thing that kind of really pops out for me is just that whole idea of boundaries mm-hmm. and needing to be really clear about boundaries when there's any kind of physical abuse. Yes. That's, that's a very scary yeah. 
place, especially to be putting a child into a situation where there could be physical abuse. Yeah. So even if they're not experiencing it, if there's, I mean, physically being beat, but yeah. if they're experiencing it, they're still taking all of that in. Yeah. Um, part of it, I think, when I read this as well, is just that whole, the pattern of abuse, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where it's not uncommon for the abuser to do that, that pulling Cycle, yes. in, that creating a safe space. Yes. And it's once you get into that safe that's space that it's just this. like, boom, yeah. that's yeah. the smackdown hits. Yeah, yeah. cycle of... I, 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 that, that pattern that really concerned me. And I, I don't, you don't know the details of this, but that is a pattern where women have been abused. Uh, I mean, the majority end up statistically going back to the guy. And, um, and it seems like, in this case, uh, she hasn't really accepted the reality of the divorce. Yeah. Um, you know, she... Is they're divorced, but she wants family time together. Right, right. Well, those are kind of two different things. And yeah. um, so I would make a really clear distinction between you and the children. Yeah, the children, I'm assuming yes. this guy wasn't abusive towards them. And yeah. it, it really concerns me because he hasn't, he's not repentant. Right. He right. exactly. if, if he had changed and got, gotten his issues taken care of, it would be a different story. But right. if he's still the same guy, uh, then assuming that it was only towards her and he's good with the kids, then you know, having kid time, having let him take the kids is one thing. But I would t- keep... I'd encourage this person to stay out of the equation yeah, with the boundaries you mentioned. Yeah, I'd have equal concerns. Um, she clearly is saying he's unrepentant, unaccountable, so regarding the abuse. So this could happen again. Um, I appreciate her desire to have the father involved in her child's life. Mm-hmm. And you know, to the degree that they're not at risk because of his abuse, he's, there's no indication he's a child abuser. So um, he might be a great father. Uh, so I appreciate her desire to be able to have the yeah. father involved. But Definitely. it seems like, like you said, Greg, she's wanting to call that family and, and she's divorced. He's not part of the nuclear family. He's still their father. So she does have this dilemma where how can I have the kids have their father in his, in his life but not put myself at risk or put the kids at risk because the father might be abusing the mom again. Yeah. And so I think it is an issue of boundaries and just saying, well, where does she draw the line? I would encourage her. Um, like you said, maybe she hasn't fully accepted the divorce or the end of the relationship. Maybe she would benefit by talking to a counselor and just kind of working that through. Has she really let go? Has she accepted, especially since he's unrepentant? And, but then still finding a good way with boundaries to allow the, the child mm-hmm. to have time with dad because that's an important thing if he's not you know, uh, inappropriately uh, behaving towards them. So. It, to me, it sounds like a lot of this still is the unresolved between her and him. Yeah. Because she's concerned about being sucked in, and but it's the kid, that the child, then that's sort of mm-hmm. the reason for why this needs to continue. But I, I just have high concerns for anybody that's in a situation where there's been physical yeah. and or even extreme emotional abuse. That's just not healthy. And the other thing is she says, uh, you know, there's some good things about him. You know, right. I, I've, I've known women in these situations where it's like, oh, he's such a wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah, I, I get beaten now and then, but he's got so many good qualities. And it's like, yeah. no, it's, it's, this is bad. And, yeah. right. and so uh, since he's already made that separation, he hasn't changed. I would really, uh, even in putting accountability, asking other people to be in your life to, so that when you start to get funky thinking about this, right. they're there to say, you know, yes. remember last time we had to bring you to the hospital? Right. And, uh, and keep that boundary in place. Yep. A support system, I yes. think, is really critical in the situation. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. All right. All right. Let me. All right. This is based on the, uh, the message from the 16th. 
So by the time I examine myself and the see the plank in my eye, I end up feeling like, who am I to call this person out on their mess? And I back off, but then their offenses never get properly addressed. How can I improve so that I stand up for myself without judging the other person? So I believe that was your message. That was, yeah. that, that was Would your you like message. to explain that? Right. I think that you're the one who preached that. Yeah. You know, this is a question I've gotten several times when I've preached on Matthew 7, where you know, Jesus says, uh, why are you looking for the dust particle in your neighbor's eye when you've got a two-by-four or a plank coming out of your own eye? Um, and, and so I, I'm happy to, to clarify this. The purpose for Jesus giving that is not to have us get into self-groveling, like, like, oh, I'm so miserable, I'm so disgusting, and whatever. Um, he's simply there collapsing our judgment mechanism, our addiction to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it applies to our general perception of other people, where under the fall we tend to evaluate, size up, criticize, if not with our mouth, and then in our mind, we're gossiping in our mind, and we're feeding off of that, the contrast, because it makes us feel better about ourselves. However pathetic we are, at least we're not as fat as that person, at least we're not as ugly as that person, at least we don't smoke like that person, at least we're better parents than that person. And so it's, it's by cutting everyone else off of the knees, we feel a little taller. Um, and human beings have been doing this throughout history. So Jesus and Paul does it and James does it. To free us from that, they reverse it. And they say, no, instead of minimizing your own sin and offenses, which is what we tend to do, and maximizing others, don't maximize yours and minimize others. But the point isn't to grovel about it, you know, or to be obsessed with it. Um, that doesn't do anyone any good. It's simply to, re- to keep us humble. The other thing is that, that there's this important distinction. In judgment, we always separate ourselves from others, okay? So there's this contrast. And we put ourselves up, up here and feed ourselves off of people. We become parasites, where we are, are feeding off of their worth, to describe it to ourselves. It's the opposite of love, which is why it's the original sin. But in relationships, uh, there's a right kind of separation, and that is not, not this way, but this way, where we distinguish things. And the same word is used in Greek, krino, which means to separate, but we're not separating from people, we're rather separating for people. And so in relationships, it's very appropriate to say, this is helpful, this is not helpful. Uh, you know, this is good for our relationship, this is bad for our relationship. Uh, it, when, when you say this, it does this to me. We're, we're helping the, the relationship by, by making important distinctions. And so uh, here, I would just encourage the per- person to remember the difference between a relationship and then our general view of others. I'll say things to close friends that I would never say to a stranger because they've invited me in on their life, and I've invited them in my life, and we're, we're doing life together. And so it's appropriate. We're, here, we're helping each other. But a stranger, I don't know. And so that comes across as judgment if they come up to me and, and say some of this. Uh, the only final thing I'll say is, 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 is this, that if, uh, if, if it required us getting out of our mess before we helped someone else get out of our mess, no one would be helping anybody get out of their mess because we're all in a mess. And so, you know, it, 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 it's all about the wounded helping the wounded, the, the messy helping the messy. I'll help your mess, you help mine, and, and we'll gradually outgrow our mess together. Yeah, I just want to piggyback on that. I, I love the fact that this person took the time and was willing to do the self-examination about their own plank. Yeah, that was good. I feel like oftentimes that's where the whole process breaks down, where we're just reacting, and we're not taking time to say, well, what, what's going on in me? What are the filters that I'm seeing this person's offense through? Is there really even offense? Um, and why am I reacting? Why is it affecting me so much? So I love the fact that this person took that step. But then it sort of unraveled from there, as you mentioned, Greg. And what I, what I find in, in you know, relationship counseling, even in my own life, I think it's, in my experience anyway, more common for folks to be conflict avoidant yeah. 
to avoid confronting others than it is for them to go confront others. Yeah. <laughs> um, it just seems to be the case in, in the experiences that I have. So it seems like this person then is it's, it's short, short-circuiting. So they don't um, take it to the full conclusion. If we're dealing with the plank, it's good to get that out of the way. We can see Jesus even said in his teaching, we get the plank, first get the plank out of our own eye so that then we will see clearly to help the other person with the speck. So one of the purposes for getting the plank out is so we can see clearly so we can be helpful. And then oftentimes confronting, it's, not, it's seen as this negative thing, but the whole purpose of it is helpful. People mm-hmm. are stuck in their patterns and their sins. Um, they don't know that they're doing the things that they're doing. So the goal of this isn't to just tear them down. It's, it's to be helpful. And I think Good. conflict avoidance often gets in the way of that. So I would definitely say push through that and frame it as this person needs my help. And if I don't help them... That's unloving. So. Well, and I think another part of this, because I go with, along with the conflict avoidance, just not feeling skillful. Yeah. So oh, I think sometimes yeah. when people go, who am I to do it? It's they, they lack the confidence that they have the skill to approach this kind of yeah. a conversation. Yeah. So the idea of when we want to enter into messiness with someone else, can we start from a position of inquiry? Yes. Uh, asking questions, checking assumptions is a great way to start some of these difficult conversations yeah. where we're just saying, here's you know, what I heard or I saw. I want to check my assumption mm-hmm. about Good. how that landed, what that meant. So I do think that part of the equation on this can be just having a bit of confidence and the skill to approach some of these conversations, yeah. uh, not with ac- accusations, mm-hmm. but yes. inquiry. Yeah. That's all I, I appreciate too about this, this person where... It's so crucial because our tendency is when someone's offending us or we're hurt, whatever, to, to get big and come over. Right. And in a kingdom way, we're supposed to come under and, right. and, and, and start by asking. And we talked about this last week. How might I be contributing yeah. to this problem? Yeah. You know, do I, am I playing a role here? Is there something I've done yeah. that, that has caused this? And it took, evokes a totally different response on the part of I can't help but feel like I'm on Dr. Phil or something. Uh, <laughs> or Oprah or, or one of these talk showers. You know, it's like, oh, who's that guy? Uh, oh, we ought to do that Springer. Huh? Oh, <laughs> that, uh, let's have a brawl. Like, oh, how can you say such a thing? Nice job. <laughs> a wrestling match. I, I, I'd just like to be someplace where I could touch the ground. My <laughs> <laughs> mama says. Let's turn to the letters here. And who's, who's taking the first one? I'll take it. You take it. Okay. Sure, I'll read it. Have at it. All right. So here it is. I truly want a close, loving relationship with my mother, but her strong religious accusations are hurtful and cause me to feel fearful, questioning my relationship with God and who he is. I am physically ill. My mother suggests my sickness may be God's punishment for unknown sins, or for not stopping the sins of my children. She tells me God might strike me dead in my sleep. Wonderful. Her big case is that we here on earth can never know for sure what God is doing. Most of the time, I can work past her religious arguments, but occasionally I get fearful and wonder if I might be wrong. I could never get on board with her plan for salvation. What can I do? I don't want to be estranged from her, yet I can't handle the guilt and fear. Uh, this one's right up my alley, so I, I like to jump in first on this. Um, yeah, the, the first thing I would say to this person is uh, the main issue here, I mean, your mother is an interesting case, uh, especially since you're ill. And here, 
but it's not surprising. A lot of folks have this view. Uh, what this person needs to do uh, is, first and foremost, it gets solidified in her picture of God. This is why I'm always saying around here, your picture of God is the most important piece of data between your ears. Uh, what, how you envision God, not just what your theology is, but how you actually envision God uh, is, is all important. And um, I think everything hangs, and I've taught a lot about this, on resolving, locking it in, that, that God is fully and completely revealed in Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. Uh, that's Hebrews 1, 3 says the, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his very essence. And, and so uh, to know that, that the love that's revealed on the cross is the final thing to say about God all the way down. And I could go off on a big, long talk on that, but I encourage this person to maybe get those messages uh, and, and to you know, just get convinced of that all-important truth because it should be the case that you're not that rocked when somebody says, you know, God's going to kill you in your sleep or you know, the wrath of God's going to come on you, whatever. Uh, hopefully you have a stronger faith in that. I'd also encourage this person not just to meditate on that and to, to know it, uh, but to it, it put herself in a position where she can begin to experience it. Uh, imaginative prayer is, 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 is very powerful in this respect, where you actually you sit and you envision Jesus and you just hear him say to you all the things that he says about you in, in Scripture, and, and you just drink deeply from that, that love. Just, just let him, you know, just see, see that love in his eyes and feel it in his embrace. Um, and that really is, is one of the main ways that we get our life, or our, our worth, our significance, our, our sense of being loved, and our security uh, from God. It's, it's just spending time uh, in imaginative prayer. I have a book on that called Seeing is Believing. And so I'd encourage this person to just, on, me- on a mental basis and also on an experiential basis, really lock in uh, the adorable God who's revealed uh, in the crucified Christ. Amen. I'll just yeah. jump in and say a couple things about this one, too. I love the fact that she says that most of the time I'm able to work past her religious arguments. So she, it sounds like she's doing well most of the time. Um, and I agree with everything Greg said, that the key is for us to have our own very vivid, clear picture of who God is. And we'll never do that perfectly. But what's happening here is often the way the enemy even works, where the enemy will speak to our minds. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's her mother. But oftentimes, these are the kinds of things the enemy will say to us, lying to us about who God is. And so it is a matter of us learning who God really is and then learning how to recognize lies, take thoughts captive, and ground our, our stability in Christ. And all she can do is the best she can do. And if she still has times where she feels like she can't handle that, then it might be a matter of sort of stepping back and maybe creating a little bit of a boundary with her mother, as un, uh, unfortunate as that might be, in the times where she's not as able to, to handle it. But good. it sounds like good she's point. doing good. There's still room for growth. And I mm-hmm. really like what you said there, Greg. Excellent. Yeah, the only other thought I have is she still has to, if she's going to continue to work with her mom, she still has to figure out maybe a different way of approaching her. Mm. So if she wants to take that extra step of saying, is there something else I could do to maybe break through, maybe change the dialogue. So as opposed to it being a religious conversation, trying yeah. to get it down to, you know, what core values, what are your fears? I would guess her mother has some authentic fears that she's maybe not going to heaven or whatever the case might be. Well, given a picture of God, you can see why she'd be living in fear. Right. Yeah. The wrath of God, can, who knows, you could strike us dead any moment. Yeah. Right. And so I'm just wondering yeah. if maybe she wants to continue to try. Could she try it yeah. with a bit different tactic and get yeah. away from the religion and actually get down to what's important to her mom, what's important to her? How do they talk at a different level? Excellent. They might want to see a pastor together or a therapist yeah. together to get down to that level. But I think it's a great suggestion. And if that doesn't work, uh, you know, one, one, the kind of boundary you can put in isn't necessarily you know, backing off from visiting her or being around her, but uh, do it around that, that, that topic. Yeah. Okay, here's the deal, Mom. Yes. Uh, 
it doesn't do me any good to be around you when you keep on yeah. saying these things. So yeah. can we have this agreement that that's going to be off the table? I thank you for being concerned for me. You know, I know that, you, you know, given your theology, this is, I wish you had, you could see the beauty of God. But, but until that happens, uh, let's just talk about something yeah. easier like politics. <laughs> <laughs> So lock in your picture of God and uh, experience your, your relationship with God and, and, and focus it on Jesus Christ and then set whatever proper boundaries are necessary. It's kind of what we've been saying. Okay, here's the next um, uh, letter. My spouse and I have been married for many years and have children in college and high school. When we got married, my spouse was a fun-loving, giving, happy, and caring man. But over the last 10 years, he has battled depression. He has sought professional help and takes a, uh, medication. However, he is still unable to work and has terrible mood swings, which affect our family. I'm tired and I'm desperate. I am fighting to do this Jesus' way. What advice or help can you offer? Yeah, I think I'll jump in on this one as well. But this, uh, first of all, I just want to express a lot of just compassion for this whole family. Um, this wife in particular, just having to be in this situation with chronic mental illness issue, depression in this case, of her husband. You know, when I was for 10 years the care pastor here, I saw a steady stream of folks who were themselves the victim of mental illness and just were doing the best they could, and nothing seemed to make a difference. And I saw families and spouses in that same situation with a loved one. Nothing they tried seemed to make any difference. So I have a lot of compassion. You know, mental illness issues seem to be just a, a growing phenomenon. Maybe they're not really growing, but we're just more aware of them, which is a good thing. But in this case, the major depression, I think it's something like 7% of the adult population in the United States struggle with major depression. Those are just the diagnosed ones. Um, well, oftentimes for folks, medication does seem to help a lot of folks, and therapy and medication together seem to even have a better outcome. In this case, it doesn't seem to be helping. So all I would say in this case is um, it might be that, uh, that it's worth trying. Uh, maybe he hasn't gone back to see if there are other medications that work for him. If he's just tried a certain medication and it just doesn't seem to be making a difference, then I would definitely encourage going back and trying others. There's a whole lot of different options out there medication-wise, and sometimes it just takes time to try different ones and different doses of different ones until you find something that works. Um, certainly, maybe they've already done that, and in that case, um, uh, other things are available. Severe depression, there's a, a, a new technology out there called transcranial magnetic stimulation, kind of big fancy name. It's very experimental, but I do know some people personally who have uh, had that procedure done, and it has made a difference in their life. The U of M does that, and Mayo Clinic um, could probably help. But short of uh, bringing any change, if, if it's just the case that he can't help it to be any different. The experts can't help it be any different. The wife can't help it be any different. I'd strongly recommend in this case that the wife and, and the family members consider maybe looking into support groups for them. Um, National Alliance for Mentally, Mental Illness in Minnesota, NAMI, has a, a website with all kinds of great resources, including family support groups for the loved ones of a person that's struggling with a mental illness issue. And so just a, a lot of prayer, maybe, a lot of just patience, um, a lot of just holding on to God, but getting support for yourself as the spouse and as mm -hmm. the children for how do you live with this. If it's an unchangeable reality, how do we live with it, and how do we get the support we need? So I don't know if you guys have other thoughts about sure. that. Well, I was just thinking of um, the other things we can do for our physical bodies that God yeah. gave us and how they work and how they're designed. And I've done a fair amount of research on the whole idea of contemplative prayer and meditation. And both for the family members as well as for the person with the depression. What they found when they went to the Franciscan uh, nuns and studied their brains, 
the, after their years of just doing contemplative prayer, was that they strengthened a part of their brain called the anterior cingulate, which is a fancy word, but what it means is it's the part of your brain that balances logic and emotion. And they find people that do this type of just quiet centeredness really do have a better ability to just deal with day-to-day -day struggles. So it might be something that the family could embrace as well as the person uh, with the problem. And then there's other just real basic things that we know God designed our bodies to work. If we eat properly, we exercise on a regular basis, uh, we get enough sleep, we are just able to be at our best self more of the time. We're mm -hmm. able to take, uh, to deal with more conflict and handle it well. So it might be another direction for people in the situation to consider. Why am I feeling conviction right now? You mentioned exercise and sleep, and these two things I haven't been doing very much of lately. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, uh, I haven't done the kind of research you have, but uh, I recall reading somewhere that it's, it's, it's not just a sort of a, the mental uh, state that uh, balances you out, but that uh, meditation actually releases, I mean, it changes the chemistry of your body. And, like, and, and that you know, combats some of the chemicals that cause the depression. That true, and the biggest thing that will change the chemical structure is getting into a state of gratitude or appreciation. So the more that we can center ourselves back in and enter into a place of gratitude or appreciation, we release different chemicals in our system that override and overtake the fear-based chemicals. So it is another balancing act. And Sue's been, uh, I don't know if you were here a few weeks ago when she spoke, but uh, you've been practicing that for five years or so? I have. She used to be really a bear to be around, but she's gotten much better. <laughs> I've actually been rewiring my brain for That's joy. Good. There's hope for us. Uh, it, Reprogram your brain. You know, it's going to be programmed by something, so you might as well you know, take authority over it and bring it under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and wash your own brain instead of letting someone else brainwash you. The only thing I, I'd add, something you said is, uh, uh, sparked something in me, is uh, when there's a big problem, it, it, often we define it simply as the big problem. Yeah. And all we see is problem. Um, but it's important, without trying to get you know, all rose-colored glasses kind of thing, Pollyanna-ish, but uh, it really helps, along the lines of what Sue just said, is to look for things to be grateful for in the midst of that and look for God to be working because the promise is that in all things he's working together for the better for those who love the Lord and call according to his purpose. And so God is at work to bring good out of it. Uh, still, you want to be pushing towards healing and, and making it as good as possible. But uh, in the process of doing that, be looking for, for maybe what God's doing, uh, how he's, he's growing you, how he's, you know, Using this uh, to further his kingdom, whatever it may be, keep your eyes open uh, for, for God's stuff. And that way, you've, you've, you've gotten a broader context out of which you're framing the problem, so the problem doesn't take up all, all your vision. The problem becomes smaller, actually, just by virtue of having a broader context. And so look for things to be grateful for, and look for God, um, and all the other things that we mentioned here. Awesome. Very good. I'll read the next one. All right. Here. So, overall, my spouse and I have a wonderful relationship. There is one area that we conflict. My spouse is very positive and always seeing the best in people and in situations. While I appreciate that quality, it seems that I'm not allowed to express negative thoughts or ideas. When I do, I feel as though I'm given a lecture to be positive and my feelings are dismissed. I don't feel listened to or heard. Is this a case of nitpicking or being too sensitive? Oh boy, I'm on this one. <laughs> All right, All right. take it. <laughs> All right. I'm hearing two big things in this, ironically, the whole positive, which we were just talking about, and you guys might want to talk about the difference between being joyful and grateful versus being Pollyanna. 
But the one that tweaks for me more is the I don't feel listened to. And I know lots of us struggle with ongoing conversations in relationships that seem to be somewhat nitpicking or are you just being too sensitive? Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, the whole idea of not feeling heard or listened to, that's a core driving desire we all have. We all have a desire and a need to feel heard and understood. And often that's also equated to how valued we feel in that relationship, in that situation. So reading this from the person who wrote it in, who I'm assuming is willing to try something new because they're the ones that wrote the letter saying, I don't feel listened to. I can't necessarily change my the other person, as we all know, but maybe influence. My first question would be, has there been enough repetition of this nitpicking sort of conversation that you're starting to trigger? So as soon as the person says, you need to be more positive, boom, yeah. the triggers go yeah. off. Yeah. Because if you're triggering in that situation, that means you've dropped from your thinking brain into your emotional brain. And one of the things I can tell you for sure is if two emotional brains try to communicate, it's called an argument. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay? So how do you know if this, this conversation has dropped from a conversation to an argument? It's, uh, you can tell what's going on, and that means two emotional brains are have, trying to communicate, which doesn't work very well, because that part of our brain is designed to protect us and keep us safe. It's our fight-or-flight system. So in these situations, I think part of it is, can you back up and wait till you're not in an emotional state and then try to uh, engage this conversation when you have two thinking brains that are willing to come together and have what would be called a discussion? A discussion, then, would be more around... uh, John Gottman's done a ton of research on relationships. And he says, when you have these conversations that drop into arguments... Stop thinking about the specific words and start looking for the values that people are trying to protect. Because underneath every argument, there are values that Mm. people are feeling and they're trying to protect them. And that's a great thing to have a conversation about. But you have to wait until people are calm and you can get your two thinking brains back in action. Yeah, that's awesome advice. I'd also say this is a classic illustration of just different temperaments, different wiring perhaps. And just as Sue mentioned, below the conversation of this year on this level are deeper values. Below the conversation or discussion or fight on this level is also different temperaments. It could be the case here, and it even looks like it is the case, where one person is perhaps just the more optimistic. It's just easier for the one spouse in this case to see the glass half full, see the positive, see what's working, see hopefulness. And it's easier for the other person to see, well, what's not working, what needs to be changed, and mm-hmm. what's, what's a little bit off. We use some language around here in our counseling ministry about people that are sort by sameness people and people that are sort by difference people. Sort by sameness people will be positive, optimistic, hopeful. Sort by difference can come across as negative, but it's just a, two different lenses to see the world. And oftentimes, and there's a, a hundred different ways that we can be wired differently that can set us up for these kinds of clashes. And so just like Sue said, dropping down to the lower level of values or just dropping down to the deeper level of differences in what we're seeing. So I think for both spouses, it would be great to tune in and say, well, I wonder what she's seeing that I'm not seeing. And then Mm -hmm. you can tune into that and validate it. I wonder what he's seeing that I'm not seeing. You can tune in and, and, and validate that as well. But I think the other thing that I see often in relationships is that we have fights because we're you know, not really listening and tuning into those, those lenses. I would just wonder about this, this writer here. Um, have you been able to approach your spouse and say, you know, I appreciate the fact that you're so optimistic. I appreciate that you see the hopeful things. I tend to miss those. But 
when you do this sometimes, when you focus on these positives, when I'm seeing the negative things, it feels dismissive to me, and I'm wondering if we can talk about that. So that's just sort of a model for having a discussion rather than a fight. When I like this about you, but when this happens, I tend to feel this, and I wonder if we can talk about that. So that's just a simple model of how do we have a conversation that's not starting right out of the gate of you know cutting each other off and cutting each other down. You know, I, I, Shelley could have written this this uh, letter the first couple of years of our marriage because uh, this was a major problem. Where uh, you know I'd be up in theological ozone layer and I, I tend to you know just be happy and positive, and she'd be wanting to talk about problems and and all sorts of stuff. And uh, I would be I was kind of like you know, just think your identity in Christ, get your life from Christ, you know, and all problems go away. Uh, and, and I meant well, and always just having this positive attitude and talk, talk, trying to help her with you know, how to think and how to reframe things and be, you know, whatever. Uh, and she would sometimes say, well, you just come down from your heavenly world for a moment to be down here with me on earth. Uh, and uh, the thing that, began, you know, what would happen is, um, I mean, some of this is, is, is uh, love languages and stuff where, um, she just needed me to get into, try to see the world from her perspective. That's what empathy is. And, and that's what really authentic relationships are about. Getting inside the other person. Not just saying, what would I do if I was in your position? But actually, what is the world like from your perspective? And, and, and what she was looking for, the phrase she would use is, I need someone to get in the box. Because she felt alone in dealing with these issues. I was so stupid that at one point, I actually said, I, I, I tried this program. It failed miserably, but I suggested it, that, that we, we, we allocate uh, two hours a week to talk about problems, and then outside of that, we don't talk about problems. How's that? <laughs> My brilliant solution. From, from, from 9 to 11 on Wednesday morning, let's deal with all the problems, and then we don't have to worry about it again. Uh, it was really, really, really stupid. Not so good. The, the other thing that's going, that, that, that could be going on, he, he could just be a very positive person, but sometimes, and this was true of me, um, there's, there's, you can be purposely blocking out all negative emotions. Right. Yeah. Um, for me, it was a, a survival strategy. I just learned how to turn that stuff off. It was how to plow forward in a difficult environment that I would have been overloaded if I hadn't done that. Um, but there was a time where I needed to outgrow that. It was just, I, I'm just good at just ignoring those kind of, if I only ignore them, I just didn't feel them. Just shut it out. And so I, by staying up here, I'm just sort of plowing over all the uh, other issues of life. And um, I needed to learn from Shelley, you know, how to be in touch with that. And she helped me a great deal. And then there was you know, a, a learning both ways, as you mentioned, Kevin, where, you know, she learned from me some of the stuff of, of uh, you know, the positive attitudes and your identity in Christ and not magnifying the problem and things like that. But I had to learn from her uh, what it is to be incarnational and to get on the inside and to be real with, with the, the, the issues that uh, are out there and, and the problems that we have and, and to be okay uh, struggling with it. I always thought that feeling those kind of problems was a sign of weakness, uh, when in fact I now know that it's, uh, it's a sign of strength. We clearly had a lot to say about that one. Yeah, well, yeah we, we kind of <laughs> went on a little bit, didn't we? All right, well, more speedily now. Uh, right. I'll do one. Okay. All right. The holidays are coming, and family gatherings are approaching. Everybody prepared? <laughs> My spouse and I are very solid in our spiritual belief. However, I come from a family with strong Calvinistic beliefs. So as you might imagine, we differ greatly on many of life's topics. My spouse and I are okay handling this. The challenge is how to prepare our young child to feel the inevitable religious questions he will be asked by his relatives. 
Yes, they start influencing young at our house. How can we train him early to answer or ignore these questions graciously without getting mad or worse, starting to wonder if we really have set him on a course to hell? (laughs) Greg. (laughs) Mentioned Calvinism, and I'm biting at the bit. Take it away. You know, this is actually a question that uh, a number of folks have asked on and off throughout the years, especially around Christmas time uh, or Thanksgiving, uh, because there's theological discussions and... um, uh, some get very challenged. If it's not about this issue, I mean, some people get challenged, like, why aren't you Republican, or why aren't you, you know, more pro-American and uh, pro-military, or whatever. So uh, it's, a, it's a very good question. It can be applied, you know, very, very broadly. The main thing I would say is this. Don't make, uh, I encourage, in fact, across the board, parents, um, don't make uh, teaching your kids about the faith and, and, and about what's distinct about it an exception. Like, you only do that in response to, you know, going to see the family. Uh, it, it's sometimes amazing how uh, little we t- actually talk about our faith with our kids. Um, and I, I would encourage you to make that you know, kind of that, that teaching, why you believe what you believe, in an age-appropriate way, but make that part of your regular, you know, where you have times to sit down and, and discuss these things. And, and make it you know, clear to them that there are folks who, who disagree with these beliefs. Um, and, and explain why you believe what you believe and how those other people are just doggone wrong. Um, but the most important thing is to be not only teaching, but even far more importantly, modeling um, how to have discussions about theology and everything else in love. And for all the reasons Sue just gave, that's a challenge. Uh, but it's such an important thing. First Corinthians sixteen fourteen. Everything, let everything you do be done in love. And that means it has to have the flavor of Calvary. Um, if at any point you find you're not discussing in love, at that point, stop. Because even if you're right, you're wrong. Uh, speak the truth in love. And so uh, model for your kids and uh, teach your kids about, about your faith and why you believe what you believe. And, 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 you know, I'd even make it clear that when we go to, you know, grandma's house, they believe something very different. And here's what they believe. Now, we, we don't agree with that for these reasons. Uh, but we're just going to keep loving them no matter what because the love is more important than the rightness of our position. Yeah, I think that's a key point. You know, even our message here is that the kind of God we're talking about is one who loves and accepts all. And so I think in the midst of these theological differences, it would be really important for us as parents not to just try and instill in our kids what we think is the right theological answer, but the right loving posture towards, yes. d- towards differences. So, oh, those we love, all, you know, we respect all beliefs, any different belief, any different idea of God or politically or whatever, we respect that. We, we can understand how wise, intelligent people could have different views. So I think modeling that, mm-hmm. verbalizing that with our kids is, a, is an important starting point rather than sort of just tearing the other side down. There's too much of that in the world. But also I just feel as a, I've got three teenagers in my house right now and they're, you know, in this modern age where there's social media and lots on TV and movies, etc., and friends, schools, they're barraged by differences of faith or differences of, of, of view on many different things. And I've just sort of taken it on myself to say, well, our family should be the context where we have those conversations over the dinner yes. table and just in casual times. I feel like it's my and my wife's responsibility to be modeling, but also to be engaging with our kids, not just sort of indoctrinating them, but dialoguing with them and saying, well, what do you think about what so-and-so mm, says? Or watching the news or watching a movie, what do you think about what they just did or said or about that viewpoint? 
and helping them to learn the critical thinking skills and come to the place where they really are choosing Good. a faith. And the best we can do is engage them in that and then model the Jesus alternative and model the, the Jesus-looking God view and, and by being open. If we try to say, well, they're wrong and we're right and here's why we're right, I think we're going to push our kids away. Um, we're going to be afraid of them thinking for themselves. I think mm-hmm. they're going to think for themselves, and so how can we um, just help them critically think but also model this as... If what you believe is true, you shouldn't need to be, you know, just yeah, indoctrinating no, people absolutely. in it. I'll say, let's explore this together. Explore it. Exploration. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, and I think one of the things you were just saying about the family talking and having the dialogue and the conversation is also critical because it creates shame resilience. So I think faith is one of those places that we tend to shame other people yeah. or we get shamed in terms of this, you're doing it wrong, you're not right, you yeah. don't have it correct, you're, you don't have the right faith, you're going to go to hell, whatever. Um, and research would indicate that the biggest factors you need for shame resilience, shame has to have secrecy and silence in order for it to penetrate and stick with a person. So when parents can create that environment of it's okay to talk about anything and everything, yes. we create shame resilience in our kids. Or in I like that phrase, kids. shame resilience. Yeah, and it, because good. we often get shamed by all kinds of, even our advertising, many things shame us in life. And to have shame resilience, we have to be able to not have secrecy or silence. And that's so important in the family dynamic to create that openness to talk about it. Yeah, excellent. Mm. Gosh, that's good. I'm just thinking of the biblical concept of truth in the New Testament. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. And the word there is aletheia, and it literally means uncovered, uncovered, uh, to bring something out of concealment. You speak the truth. And that's just about this total openness. This is honest and open, whatever the concerns are, whatever's real. No no stuffing goes on. Uh, The only thing I I add is that it's just so, you know, if you're having a discussion of that's theological in nature, the main job there is, you know, if you're representing the faith that we teach around here, it's about it's about you're presenting this beautiful, self-sacrificial, loving, nonviolent God. Uh, and Paul says that we are you know God's epistles, we're his letters, uh, we are his PR department, and it, it's there's notice the contradiction if we're representing that God and yet we get angry and start to fight and all that kind of stuff it's uh, uh, not very far better to model it and lose the argument than to try to win the argument and not model it that's right All right. next one I'll take this I have a friend but you didn't know that but I do I have a friend that isn't very sensitive to my concerns and circumstances when I am uh, upset or dealing with a a difficult issue like my family or health she occasionally is kind and thoughtful, but more often she is not at all concerned about my concerns or about me. I do have to, I do have to see her as we have a common work situation, but I'm wondering if I should even remain friends with her. Hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I'll jump in on that one. That, I, 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 that kind of last line there sort of shifted a question for me. Like She starts off saying, I have a friend, but then there's a common work situation. And so what this person is describing is, you know, I have a friend, but she's not very sensitive to my concerns. And, you know, she starts to unpack a lot of things there, and it seems like this other person is not really responding. And if that's really going on, the first thought I have is, does this other person know that she's a friend rather than just a coworker? Mm. So just because you work together and you may talk a lot on lunch breaks or here and there in the hallways and stuff, does this other person know she's a friend? Does she consider you a friend? Have you 
define that this is friend relationship rather than coworker relationship. It seems off awkward maybe that we would have to define the relationship that way in friendships, but I do think it's really true. If if the other person is really viewing, well, this is a coworker relationship, that may explain why she's not engaging as 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 much. So I would encourage this person to say, well, first of all, do you both see this as a friendship and just have that conversation? Um, and then how do you define friend? So what does friendship mean to you? I would say friendship means to me that my friends would be concerned about my concerns. Um, but then just have that conversation explicitly. And instead of having sort of these silent expectations, I think there's the need to have sort of conversation about what's the nature of our relationship. That's the wisdom of covenant. Right? Absolutely. So we're, we're making, Paul Eddy talks about covenant as being love formalized. So let's formalize what, what's friendship mean to each of us. And, so, and she could do this by saying, you know, I've considered you a friend, but it seems like at times, you know, when I share these deeper things, you don't seem all that interested. So I'm wondering if you consider me a friend or what, how do you see our relationship? Um, and then it allows the other person to say, oh, I, I never noticed that. Yeah, I do consider you a friend, and I didn't realize I wasn't um, very sensitive. Or she could say, oh, I never thought of us as friends. Either way, it's a win because you've clarified some things. Although going into that conversation, I would encourage people, Especially if you're fairly invested in this relationship, and um, the, the person who gets hurt most in any kind of a breakup is the person who cares the most. Yeah. And so, in this case, yeah. uh, you could take a hit. Like it, 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 when you say, you know, I, I thought we were friends of this level, and they come back and say, no, we just work together. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to hurt. So it really helps to go into that, knowing you're getting your life from Christ, getting your worth, and all of that, because uh, it, it could be a little bit painful. Yeah. Absolutely. Another thought that comes to my mind is if, if she has this conversation and the coworker says, yes, I am a friend, and so they've clarified that, and she still ends up having, she's not seeming concerned, she's not the kind of friend you want. We had a lot of letters come in that were that kind of situation where I want this kind of relationship with this person, but they don't seem to want it. At that point, I feel like we can't control all those variables. There's What came to my mind this week when we were reading these was the old serenity prayer. Many of you are familiar with this. It's a prayer written by theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. AA folks know it very well. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I think it's an awesome prayer for ourselves. But it's also an awesome prayer to use in relationships because often we're trying to change others in the relationship instead of accepting things the way they are. And we should be trying to work mutually at change, but I think other times there's a need to accept this is as good as it maybe is going to get, and I'll, I'll roll with that. So God grant me the serenity to accept the things in others that they can't or won't change, the courage to help them change the things they can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I think that's a key thing in friendships and relationships. Yeah, I don't have a lot well, to add on that. The only thing I did think about, Greg, you were talking last week about, you know, the dynamic of relationships. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is it that you were hoping to get from the relationship may to the other person seem too much. Like you're asking too much of them for Mm -hmm. what they think this is about. And do you need to then find another place to get some of the support that you're looking for? Because if you're not going to get it in this friendship, maybe there is another place you could be getting the kind of support you need for someone to listen to you or whatever that is. Mm, Very good. good. It's always important from a kingdom perspective to go into these things not, you know, above, like, like, you know, you're doing this wrong, but to come under. And uh, we use power under. Um, and humility is essential to that. And so it's always, it's always good to start by doing the kind of Matthew 7 thing where you, you know, Jesus says, don't go looking for the dust particle in your neighbor's eye when you've got a plank in your own eye. So you might start by asking the question, have you been considerate enough of their concerns? Have you, have you been modeling what you would hope to get in this relationship? 
because um, often you know people can we don't see our own weaknesses and maybe this person has been uh, you know putting out concerns that you just haven't been hearing uh, because you've been too into your own concerns so that's always a good thing to add. Yep. I think we have time for one more. Maybe one, one more. I'll read this one. All right. I met a wonderful man that helped me change my life in many good ways. I love him and have agreed to marry him, but I'm having second thoughts. I'm now wondering who I really am. Did the changes I made make me the best version of me that God would hope for, or just a different person that someone else wants and likes? How do I figure this out? Mm. Mm. Yeah, wow. That's a great question. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not Dr. Phil, but <laughs> I would have to say, if, if you are thinking about marrying this person, the first thing I'd have to say is wait, wait, <laughs> yes. wait. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's take a little time out here. Yeah. When in um, doubt, don't. <laughs> Well, yeah, because it seems as though this is a pretty big thing to be yes. to thinking about. And first of all, I really want to applaud this person for clearly they are willing to step back, do some reflection, learn, change, um, consider where you know maybe their life isn't running as smoothly as they wanted. And um, so I think that process needs to continue. She's yeah. apparently not quite done with it yet. So she's made some changes which she seems to be feeling really good about, which is fantastic. But now she needs to make sure they kind of settle into, is this who she truly is? Mm -hmm. So I think there does need to be a bit more of a reflection time, a little bit more digging in, maybe getting input from trusted family members or friends who know the changes that she's made so far. Do these seem authentic and good for her in a kingdom kind of way? Uh, So maybe getting a little... Not getting too isolated, because I think sometimes in relationships, you meet somebody, it gets a little crazy, and you make all these changes, but it's too isolated, and you maybe don't have good perspective anymore. And the reality of it is, if this person is going to wait and do a little bit more work, if this is truly the right person for her to marry, he's going to be 100% on board and want to work with her and work through this. Mm, good point. If this is a, oh, I might lose him if I don't you know, push the button and marry him now, that's probably not the right relationship. Yeah, exactly. Very good point. Yeah, I love just the way this is framed, that I think love is supposed to change us. Loving relationships will help us grow and will develop us. And so it's good that she's even had these changes. She's thankful for some of that. But the kind of changing that love does is an inside-out kind of thing. So loving relationships will draw change out from within um, because we're accepted as we are and because we're cherished and then we're nurtured. Um, but then if change is coming outside in, you know, the other person's expectations, yes. either they're pressuring us to change, they won't accept us unless, or we are trying to please them. We could be placating them. We could be trying to change so they'll love us more and be that we want to be the person they want us to be. Now, that's not the change that love does. And that actually will be a huge stumbling block in this relationship in the future. There could be a lot of resentments and bitterness um, that come about years later because of the outside-in sort of change rather than the inside-out change that love draws out of us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've known a few people where, uh, and in the cases I know, it's always uh, the guy being the stronger personality. Uh, and in these cases, you know, the person is just, it's charismatic, you know, and there's a lot of things going on. But um, is able to c- kind of control folks. And doesn't even do it consciously, but just sort of does that. And if a person comes in and they don't, aren't really solid in their identity in Christ or, you know, their self-image or whatever, they can get sucked into that. And, uh, you know, three years later, they're looking at themselves and... and they got lost in the process. Right. They're just yeah. a little version of him. Uh, and that's when they start to have a lot, a lot of conflict. So, yeah, I, I would say take some time out and 
know yourself, get to know yourself, yeah. find out who, who you are, what God's called you to be apart from the relationship so that you're not being defined by his expectations. All right. My spouse and I have an interesting relationship that seems to work for us. We are very different and have wildly, widely differing opinions about almost everything. And yet, we've always been able to compromise. This is until recently. Now it seems my wife is making decisions on her own without my agreement and against my opinion. Is it time that I take over leadership? Zinger. Hot potato. Greg. Going your way. <laughs> this is what I'm kind of passionate about. <laughs> take over leadership. Um, so up to this point, it sounds like, and I appreciate the person for asking an honest question. That's, that's good. And I want to help in the situation. Um, take over leadership. Up to this point, you've been compromising. And you've been kind of working things out, even though you disagree on a lot of stuff. What it, who does who put you in charge? Uh, are you is, is this something that your wife would agree to? Um, and, and think about how that's going to go down. Uh, take over leadership. If you mean by that you're going to now impose your way, uh, how is that going to help this relationship at all? Uh, it seems to me that if up to this point you've been trying to compromise and work things out, to just say I'm done with that. Now it's well, was that all a sham? Is this like the, the real situation here? Uh, you want to call all the shots? Um, that is kind of a declaration of war. I think that I would advise you strongly not to do that. It may be the case even, if, if this is in your mind that you're supposed to be the leader and you think by that means imposing your will, it's possible, I don't know, but it's possible that the reason your wife now is starting to make decisions about things without any of your input might be because she's already feeling squished. I'm just, you know, consider that. It's always good to ask the question, am I, you know, what, 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 what might I be doing that is changing things now that she's, we're not doing these things out of dialogue, she's just kind of going to, to do them uh, on her own. Now, if you mean by leadership, um, take, if you mean by le- leadership, uh, what Paul means by headship in Ephesians 5, then absolutely, take, take it over. Because what Paul says, as he's speaking to husbands in the first century who have all the power, so they're the first ones you've got to go to. Uh, he says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave her life, his life for her. Uh, Christ is head by coming under, giving his life, sacrificing. And so applied to marriages, it would be, you take the initiative on deferring. You take the initiative on sacrificing for her. You take the responsibility to come under her, to hold her up, to esteem her. Um, and, and to do all you can to pour off for her. If that's what you mean by leadership, I'd say absolutely go. I don't think your wife would mind that. Um, but if you mean sort of this over, coming over sort of thing and imposing, using whatever power you think you have to impose your will on her, I think that would be absolutely disastrous in the situation. Uh, it wouldn't result in, in, in anything very good at all. I, I would, incre- and this is true of all, all kingdom relationships, it shouldn't be about coming over people. It should, about, should be about coming under people. And, and so I'd encourage you to, you know, do the Matthew 7 kind of thing and first say, what, you know, what's the plank in my eye? Before I go try to pick, pick out the little sawdust in her eye, what planks might you have? Uh, how are you contributing to the situation? And then humbly go to her and say, honey, I, I, we've been you know, having this dialogue about things, on important decisions anyways, um, and all of a sudden it seems to me that you're kind of just going out on your own and, and I'm feeling left out of this. 
Uh, have I done something that has upset you, that's, that's cha- causing the situation to change? Uh, and and invite, her, invite her input, which is the opposite of coming over and saying, I'm now going to enforce my input. Yeah, I agree. That, that one of the things that stood out immediately to me in this vignette was the shift there. Now it seems like my wife, we've, done, we've always done this well, we've always been able to compromise, and then now. And so to me, I, I would agree, maybe for the wife it hasn't been such a great experience or arrangement. He feels like it's working for him, but maybe it's not been working for her all along, and that's why the now yes. shift. But if it has been working well all along, there, and then there's this shift where now she's doing something different, that really is what I think needs to be paid attention to. So he could be asking himself, well, why? I wonder why. Mm-hmm. Get curious. Instead of sort of get threatened, it's get curious. I wonder why she might be doing this different thing now. And then, obviously, the first thing to do would be ask her, "Hun, it seems like this has changed. Um, were you happy and satisfied with the arrangement before? It seems like it's changed now. Has something yeah. changed in you, or have I done something different? I think that's really important. I think for couples in general, it seems like maybe this couple has never had a fundamental conversation early on about what is our agreement regarding power, regarding decision-making. And I think it's really important for couples on the front end of their relationship to have that kind of conversation. What do we each believe about how do we share power and responsibilities and how decisions get made? Um, obviously, uh, some couples, Christian couples could go the route of you know, male headship. Um, I would definitely agree that if they do that, it's the way that Greg just... Uh, laid it out beautifully where Jesus serves um, as our head. But egalitarian marriages where we each sort of have a voice, but it would be great to make explicit what is our uh, arrangement here? What is our structure for decision-making? And then how can we agree on that and move forward into the future? Well, I think one of the things, you're both assuming they're having a discussion and a conversation. So part of this is what's going on in the communication style yeah, here. Very good. So we touched on this a little bit last service, but just the idea back to how our brains are wired is we have this fight or flight response system built in. So if this topic, whatever the topic is, and we trigger, the reality of it is we are no longer in our complex or our thinking brain. We've now dropped down into our emotional brain. And one of the things we know for sure, as we discussed, was if you have two emotional brains communicating, you actually have... War. <laughs> yes, you now have an argument. All right, two emotional brains working together are simply an argument. You're not going to solve anything in that place. So I agree that one of the big solutions here would have to be honest dialogue, mm-hmm. but that's got to require the complex thinking or you know the thinking brain involved. Mm-hmm. So those have to happen in a time where the emotional part of the brain is not being triggered. So something to keep in mind is, because when I hear the word compromise, compromise is very often a flight response. Mm. So a fight response is, I'm going to attack. A flight response is, okay, let's just do it that way. But mm. you're not committed to it. You don't agree with it. You don't feel valued in it. That sounds like this guy came around, and now, he went, now he's going to do a fight response. Um, yes, I'm, exactly. There's a new man in town. I'm taking over. Uh, that is probably not going to be helpful. Well, I love it sounds what you like said. the wife might have gone from, from flight to Exactly, flight. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she's going rogue. Uh, I, I love what you said a couple of weeks ago when you said that the amygdala, which is our emotional brain, Okay, it's this base part of our brain, the fight or flight reflex. It can learn, but it cannot think. I, I, I love it. And, and when you, once you're triggered and you're emotional, uh, there's no thinking going on, so the discussion is not going to help at all. You may do more harm, but you're not going to do any good. Yep. So, yeah, point trying to take over. All right, ready to move on? Yes. Next one. You want to read that one, Greg? Yeah, I think I will. Wait, uh, which one are we on here? Uh, we're on... Uh, oh, the, is this the no podcaster? Oh, oh okay, oh, yeah, yeah, here we are. 
Got a little lost there. All right. I listen to... I get my services mixed up. I listen to uh, the Woodland Hills uh, Church via podcast, and I have a question for the panel. What is the best way to deal with continuing frustration with our church leadership? I'm glad they said they were podcasters, because no one here would have any problem. Other than the preacher, what, is the problems? what, what problems could you have? I do pray and bless them. The concern is that our church has no forum for discussion where church life is brought to the members for input, counsel, or discussion? Hmm. Yeah, good question. And to me, it wasn't 100% clear. Was this a podcaster like way out there somewhere who is part of another church? Or is this one of our folks who podcasts? Oh, they're far out, I'm sure. But I'm assuming it's about, let's just pretend it's about another church and not our church. But either way, I think the things that we would want to say about this would be similar. So I, I think the, thing that, the word that stood out to me first and foremost was, wow, continuing frustration. And so one of the things that I try to help folks do is to look at the emotion of frustration and think, well, what's, that? what's the purpose? Every emotion has purposes that are functional to help us understand situations in our lives. Each emotion has different purposes, but if we understand the purpose of emotion, then we can say, well, this one's trying to tell me something. What is it trying to tell me? So I tend to help folks look at frustration, this, this emotion none of us really likes, but it's trying to do a good job. Frustration is trying to tell us, try something different. Um, we, we keep trying the same thing over and over again. We'll probably get the same results. If we do that, frustration is going to happen, and it's really doing a job. It's telling us, try something different. Try something. Don't just keep doing the same thing over again. Look for a different thing. And what I would recommend in this situation is, um, I, I don't know if this person has uh, taken the time to talk to a pastor or a leader and say, well, what is our leadership structure? Do we have a process? So those are simple questions. Do we have a process for uh, members to voice in or for us to sort of express concerns, what is that process? Is that on the website somewhere? Is it in the bylaws somewhere? So just asking you know, a leader or the pastor, what is our process? What's our structure? Can I see that in writing? And hopefully the church would have something like that, and then this person could sort of follow that process. Uh, maybe the church doesn't have a process for that, and then this person is legitimately frustrated, and I think at that point their question would be, well, hey, could I help us develop a process like that because certainly every marriage every family every business every community and certainly every church needs that kind of a process a feedback loop where folks can say well from our vantage point here's some questions we have here's some concerns here's some suggestions how can we get those into the mix in a loving respectful way um, and then help uh, that be addressed if it's possible i think uh, at the end of the question here it said you know um, we need a forum where the uh, Church life is brought to the members for input, counsel, and discussion. I think the last thing I would say is if this person is part of a pretty large church like Woodland, um, it's pretty hard for a church like our size to be able to have everybody voice into what we're doing. And so that's part of why we have boards set up. So we have an overseer board who could field suggestions, hear concerns, and then they sort of represent the congregation. They're a smaller group that then is much more able to process those things. Otherwise, you have too many cooks in the kitchen mm. or too much chaos. So hopefully there's a, there is such a group in place in this church, and I would just have them ask, hey, what is our structure? And if there is none, let's, can we build one? And at Woodland Hills, the structure is, if you have a problem, call Kevin anytime. <laughs> I was just going to say, call Greg. Go Here's well. his address. We'll be putting that up on the screen here. Well, I was thinking this is a good time to plug covenant membership. Yeah. I mean, because you do get more of a voice mm, right. once you're part of the covenant membership. I mean, there are forums, covenant partners. meetings, covenant yeah. partners. There's 
you get to come to the meetings, voice your opinion a little mm. bit more. So we could yeah, plug that. Definitely. I was going to say the other emotion that came up for me that has a good purpose is confusion. Oh, yeah. So yeah, confusion is basically you being informed of the fact that you don't have enough information. Yeah. So there's a good purpose for confusion as well, which I think the definitely. solution would be very similar. Definitely. And I would just question, how is this person showing up? So yeah. are you showing up as, we've got a problem, we've got a problem, we've got a problem? Or are you showing up with, I'm seeing an opportunity here. Maybe we could discuss some different avenues approaching things. One thing that struck to me was just the, the, the form. Like the person thought there'd be a form. And, and uh, there's some context in, in church where that would be appropriate. But um, what, what, what happens with a lot in America is, is people think that churches are going to be just a democracy. And they want to be able to vote on everything. Uh, which can work if you have a real small church, I suppose. But you get a church of any size, and it just doesn't work that way. And, and it's not the biblical model. There should be feedback, but the, there's also a leadership structure. And, um, and so there's a, there's a place for leading and a place for following. And it's, it's not run as a democracy. Um, and so this person here, it, it, maybe their expectations about a church were, were just unrealistic to start with. What I would recommend, I don't know, whatever the process is, if they don't have a process, go one-on-one uh, to the, 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 the people who are decision-makers. And then humbly you know, just submit your, your, your suggestions or whatever it is that you have. Uh, and the final thing would be this. If on any matter you find, and I don't know what, how frustrated this person would be, but uh, some things are deal-breakers for us. Something is very important that you think a church should have and the church isn't doing it. You've tried different avenues to get the church on board. If it gets to the point where you find that you've lost respect for the leadership, um, you, you no longer have trust in or confidence in the leadership, I really encourage folks to then find a different church body that they can trust. Because it's not healthy to be in a church body uh, where you are being asked to follow people that you yourself don't trust. It's not good for the church body and it's not good for you. And, and so uh, there's a time where you just got to you know, really seriously pray about it. Maybe it's time to move on. All right. I'll read this next one. All right. I have a roommate issue. This person believes that they are kind and giving. However, my experience is that they are closed off to any input or others' perspectives. I've come to learn that this person was bullied as a child, and I'm now seeing a pattern of conflict in his life that is consistent in his personal, work, personal and work relationships. I believe this pattern will continue until he can forgive the person or people that hurt him. I've tried telling him that forgiveness is not condoning what the other person has done, but is freedom to have peace moving forward. I'm tired of the drama, and I'm ready to leave. But then Greg said, sometimes there's something we are to learn from difficult people. Greg, you're getting more people, four people in trouble. Greg said, blame it on me. There's a a lot in here. One of the things I'm just picking up on, first of all, so fantastic that this person is willing to commit to and care about their roommate as opposed to just judging them and walking away. So I think lots of kudos for even thinking this way and for wanting to have that tough conversation around forgiveness with them. What I'm kind of tuning into, the first thing I was hearing in this is the the bullying piece because bullying's obviously become a big term in the last five or ten years and it really is just another form of abuse. So sometimes it's physical abuse, sometimes it is, almost always it's emotional abuse uh, of some type. So Sometimes I think if we can reframe this and think, wow, the person I'm working with was abused as a child, socially, emotionally, whatever it is, would I think about that a little bit differently? Would I have a little bit more empathy for that person? 
when I put that frame on it. Now, as John Gottman would say, all emotions are okay, all behaviors are not. So this person's behaviors still aren't okay. So I was just thinking, what are some other ways? It seems like this person's looking for some suggestions. How else might I approach this person, or what else could I learn here? So maybe some of the empathy pieces, you could learn a little bit more about what does bullying mean? What does it feel like? What's the impact of it? But if they wanted to reach out and continue to try and help this person, um, I love the idea that they had the conversation with forgiveness about them, but it is a bit of a solution. I'm going to tell you what you should do, and if you just do it, it'll be okay. And if that would have worked for them, that's great, but apparently that solution didn't work for them. So how could we sit down and talk with people who have different experiences in life than we do and uh, you know, pull it apart. So it might be an interesting time for them to have that conversation. Again, this is two thinking brains together, not two emotional brains. And just start asking them questions about if they're aware of their impact. Because in the letter they say, this person comes off as someone uh, who doesn't want to change, you know, that thinks they kind of have it wired the right way. So they might want to just start with some conversation about what kind of do they understand the impact they're having on other people because that might identify for them a reason why they would want to start changing. They'd want to start looking at the issue. Yeah, Good. one of the things that stands out for me in this one is the last towards the end there. I'm tired of the drama and ready to leave. And I think we can all relate to that. There's definitely times where we've done everything we can. And in this situation with a roommate, maybe there's just a chemistry or uh, personality clash that just isn't going to work out to be roommates together. But what I would feel like in our society, I think there's a tendency that, that I think really is here that's sad, that we tend to maybe quit too soon or we give up too quickly. We're, maybe we aren't as able to be tolerant of drama as Jesus would even like us to be over the long haul. And I think of 1 Corinthians 13 talks about how these qualities of love, love bears all things, love endures all things, love hopes all things. And those are things that have to be sort of developed in us, character qualities. And I think when they made a reference, Greg said something that we might be able to learn from difficult people. Well, we're going to learn these kind of qualities only from difficult situations. So long-suffering, enduring hard things, bearing all things, those will only be learned by staying in a difficult situation long enough for them to be forged in us. That certainly doesn't mean we stay in every difficult relationship. There may be relationships, even with a roommate, where it wouldn't be healthy or loving to stay because it's just really destructive both ways. But I think sometimes we might bail out too early, and then we're not allowing that character, the forging of character to happen by hanging in it and then trying some things differently. Like, how can I develop patience, long-suffering, kindness? How can I change my approach with the person? So, good. You guys covered it. <laughs> Believe it or not, I have nothing to add. Wow. That's... Except to say this. <laughs> Too late. Call Kevin if you have a problem. That's like, I All right. So you want to read the next one? Sure. Let me get to the next one. This is what I do have something to say. You do have something yeah, to I... say? All right. A little bit. All right. Ooh, I truly want to honor my wife and honor my father and mother as the Bible instructs me to do. But what do I do when they disagree on issues where my decision will offend one or the other? In one particular case, I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. I can find plenty of Bible passages to support both sides of the argument. Help. He's caught between a... Parental rock in a marital hard place. Uh, I, 
could be accused of having a jaded perspective on this, so you guys will have to balance me out. But I, I have a little bit of a buzzer about this, uh, frankly, because I have seen um, marriages uh, blow apart because of intrusive in-laws. And so I'm coming in, I'm going to put all cards on the table, I'm coming into this with uh, that sort of background perspective and, and triggers. So here, here's the thing, if, if, if your parents, if, if once the parents are offended, if your parents are offended because you disagreed with them and sided with your wife, uh, or you have to even worry about offending them uh, because you will side with your wife on a particular decision, I recommend that you don't allow them to have any input on those kind of decisions. Uh, it, that itself tells me there's something off here that you have to worry that, you have, you know, that you're being, these two are being pitted together. Uh, Genesis 2 says, you know, leave and cleave. Leave the parents, you start a new family, and that family is to be it, its own unit. Now, you can get great insight and, and wisdom and all that, solicit that from your parents, and you know, they make wonderful grandparents and all that, wonderful. But when it comes to decisions, if you want their input, you, you can ask for it. But if they're giving input and causing conflict here that's causing you to have divided loyalties, uh, that to me is, uh, they're, they're sticking their nose too much uh, in, in the, your business. And you need to be able to say, and this will probably offend them, but do it as lovingly as possible. Speak the truth in love, but speak the truth and say, I love you and I respect you, uh, but um, this isn't helping us. Uh, and so I'm going to ask that you uh, wait for us to invite you in on a decision before you offer your input on the decision. Yeah, For I, my two cents. I would tend to agree that the scenario isn't crystal clear enough for me to kind of know where where is the primary disagreement here, but I would definitely agree that the husband and wife certainly need to be unified. And so I think there is that oneness that couples are called to. And if anything else gets in between that, then everything sort of falls apart from there. I think it's great for couples to always be open to outside input um, because uh, any system that's closed can become a sick, dysfunctional system. So any marriage that doesn't have input from outside the two spouses could become unhealthy. But for sure, every marriage, the couple has to be unified. They have to make sure that we are a unified team that we are kind of presenting a unified face to the world and deciding things in harmony with each other. And if any, anything gets, even family members or children, gets in between us, then I think the whole system unravels from there. So teaming up as a, as a couple would be key. Then how from there do we talk, have dialogues with other family members, in-laws, parents, children, whatever the case might be. If we're a unified team, we can now go out and solicit input from others and and just take, wisely consider it. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's, that would be a wise uh, structure for a marriage. But letting things get in between us is, yeah. is dangerous. So. And one of the, I think, base questions we can often ask is just, um, what do I value more than this particular situation right now? So what is more important in this relationship, either relationship, than this one particular dynamic we're talking about? I think sometimes that's just a good pullback question. Say more about that. It's, it's gaining perspective. So there's always multiple perspectives in any situation. So mm. you've got my perspective, I've got my opinion of the other person's perspective, and then we've got God's perspective on things. Mm. So at any moment in time, we can look at any situation from multiple yes. perspectives. And I think sometimes these just become little... We're, we're putting too much focus again on one okay. thing. Yeah, that's good. As opposed, and we're all getting rooted in what the right mm. answer is. Mm. As opposed to pulling back and saying, wow, what's the bigger picture about the relationship in general mm. and the dynamics we want to have? Yeah, very good. Maybe they could ask, 
a more fundamental question of like, what, why are the parents uh, doing this? What concerns driving them? Is there a deeper underlying issue right. uh, that, that is at work here? Well, one other th- aspect about this is that the person seems to be caught in the, uh, the idea that to honor your mother and father, you want, I appreciate the fact that this guy wants to be biblical and have a biblical perspective on this, but I think he's getting tripped up on something. Uh, the concept of honoring, honoring your father and mother, and you have other things you're supposed to honor, uh, does not mean that you agree with them. Right. Uh, it, it, it actually means ascribe to someone or something uh, the appropriate worth, mm-hmm. to honor that worth. Um, and so uh, when parents are acting honorably and you know, uh, respectfully, uh, acknowledge that. That's honoring them. Yes. But if they're acting dishonorably or disrespectfully, uh, well, you also are obeying the biblical command by acknowledging that. Yeah. Uh, and and speaking the truth in love. And so I wouldn't be tripped up by the concept of honor your Yeah, I think that's key. I think that the key would be to disagree honorably. Right. And absolutely, um, we can, we can, to to honor doesn't mean to agree. And I feel like we, uh, we're all responsible to live before God with the things he's showing us by our value system. And sometimes people are going to disagree, but we have to be able to tolerate others' displeasure, especially our parents. I think it's often the case where couples get married and the parents are still, expressing their opinions but the newly married people are feeling like uh, these are these are the parents these are the people I've always had to sort of do what they said and that feels like dishonoring if I if I disagree but it isn't dishonoring it's it's disagreeing honorably so that switch is something that has to be made uh, where you know they raised you and you were always you know try to follow their ways and their teachings but that yeah. has, has to switch yeah. when people get married so I, I'd say to parents here as your kids are getting married I'd encourage you to help them do that if, if they're not doing it already. And sometimes it, it can be, I'm talking as a you know, parent of a daughter of, of grandchildren, uh, and sometimes you know, it's hard, you have to just bite your tongue because uh, you wouldn't have done it that way or you wouldn't have raised them that way, you wouldn't, so whatever. Uh, but you have to, uh, and, and in a loving way, you can give your input if they invite that, but uh, they have to do, do their own marriage, do their own life, do their own families. And uh, that's crucial. All right, uh, let's uh, go to the next one. Got time for two more here. I grew up in a family that I would say was neglectful. Today, I have a strained relationship with my parents and siblings. When we see each other, there tends to be tension and conflict, and my stress, discomfort, and anger increases. Those feelings then bleed over into my immediate family. I feel like it's incumbent upon me to mend the relationships, but I know that's not possible. So that's an interesting dilemma there. I think my family is well-intentioned, but not willing to change. How do I reconcile being a follower of Christ and wanting to give up on my family? Yeah, I'll jump in on this one. That's a, that's a tough situation. I first of all just want to say we had a lot of letters like this where folks grew up in abusive families, neglectful families, just a lot of wounding from their family of origin and have a lot of compassion and sympathy for that. And in this case, it's even more sad, and, and, and the, the, the pain is even amplified by the fact that they're unwilling, uh, parents were unwilling to change on this. So, but what, I, what stood out to me, first of all, when I looked over this scenario was 
that this person um, who grew up in the family that was neglectful, it's, it's, it makes tons of sense. We go back into visiting uh, family members, parents, etc., go back to their house, their siblings. You're brought right back to your childhood. <laughs> the neural nets of our childhood are activated. We go home. We're around the same people, their same styles, their same patterns, and that brings us right back. And so it seems to me like when this person was voicing that her stress or his stress was uh, stress, discomfort, and anger increases. And so it um, made me wonder if this person has started out on their own healing journey. Um, it could be that they've been seeing a counselor, they saw a counselor for some of these things, but it could be that they haven't yet started that healing journey to address their own family of origin issues. Um, the, the early years of our lives really affect us deeply, and that stuff doesn't go away just because we grew up. It stays there unless we're intentional about pursuing healing. And sometimes that can happen just through healthy relationships in our adulthood, but sometimes we need the extra help of counseling or therapy. So I'd encourage this person to consider, if they haven't already, um, to, to maybe find a counselor or a therapist who could help them walk through their neglect issues and the, the way that they're still feeling anger and distress about these kinds of things, and then how that bleeds over into fam- current family stuff of their own, try to set a boundary between that. Um, what also stood out to me in this scenario was that this person, for some reason, felt like it was incumbent upon them to mend the relationship, mm. which is also extremely common. So we are wanting to resolve things. Of course, this person wants a good relationship with their uh, parents and siblings now, and we want to fix the past and fix the present, and it's my responsibility to do that. The fact is that it's not this person's responsibility. All they can do is pursue healing themselves first and foremost, and then invite others, the, the parents, the siblings, to uh, have dialogues towards healing as well. But it's not this person's job to, to fix that. Um, the last thing that stood out to me about this scenario was a very honest question. How do I reconcile being a follower of Christ, which makes this person want to pursue healing and want to stay in relationship, um, but not give up on the, my family? Follower of Christ, give up on my family because they're not willing and it's just too painful. And I would just ask the question, is there something between trying harder to um, have the, the, healing, the relationship healed and giving up? Again, it would be that middle area of how can, what are the things you can change within you? If they're not willing to change, um, then things you change, how, how you change can actually help change the relationship. Last week, Greg talked about this third entity. There's me, there's this, the other person, and then there's the relationship we have. And if there's nothing else I can do to try and help the other person change, um, I can always look at changes. What can I do to change inside of me, like a healing journey? And that will change my side of the relationship. And changing my side of the relationship may be the thing that is most likely to help the relationship change. It might not, but it's the only th- part that I can control. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Other thoughts about that? From you well, one thing that occurs to me is, is that um, sometimes the dynamics... That- always the dynamics change when you talk with people one-on-one than when you're in the system. And so I don't know if this person's tried this or not, but you might think of going one-on-one to the, the, the parents and siblings in, in this family and uh, do it in a kingdom way where you come down low. Uh, you humble yourself and ask, um, it seems like we have a strained relationship. Is there something I'm doing that has contributed to this? I would really like to have uh, a a healthy relationship with you, uh, can we work together on this? And it's kind of a divide-and-conquer sort of a, a approach, uh, but it's, it's, it's done in love, and I think it's very helpful. The other thing that, that, just to note something that I think is interesting here, is when he says it's bleeding over into his family. Yeah. And, and, and if you're finding that, having done everything you can, nothing changes, 
first of all, you need to accept that. There's a point where, having done all you can do, this is what it is. And sometimes we're tormented by a dream. We want the Ozzy and Herod, you know? Uh, and his family isn't Ozzy and Herod, uh, or in, uh, Home on the Prairie, or any of those things. Um, and so, so you, you have <laughs> to just... I realize I'm using an analogy from 50 years ago, which is a little dated. But uh, uh, it, it is what it is. It is what it is. And if you keep on trying to you know, pick apples from a pear tree, you're just going to get frustrated. Yeah. So it is what it is. You still love them, but you just acknowledge that this is what it is. Uh, and then think about what kind of boundaries need to be in place to keep that from bleeding over into your immediate family. Um, you know, and so whatever it is, uh, time, space, whatever, but put the boundaries because your first responsibility is to your immediate family, awesome. your wife and kids. I think we have time to squeak one more in. I'm going to read this one. Well, it's an, it's an easy one. Uh, yeah, this is yeah. quick. All right. You got five minutes. Quick. Infidelity, no problem. <laughs> Say the best to last here. My wife and I have been together for many years. Based on an infidelity on my part very early in our relationship, we continue to end up back in the same rut. We do not seem to be able to move past my infidelity. I love her, and I want to move on. Help. Sue, you got four minutes. <laughs> anybody, anybody? Certainly. Let me just handle that. Uh, well, there are a couple of things, and it's a little hard because we don't have a ton of information here. So a, a t- couple of top-line things for me is, th- it would appear to me, let's see, is this a man or a woman? Do we know? Um, yeah, man. Man My was wife. infidel? Okay. Um, I have seen situations where, uh, in fact, know someone quite well who uh, her spouse had been, you know, walking out on her once, and it was a one-time thing, and she just couldn't get the image out of her head. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about how your brain can wire, and you start playing the same thing over and over, and you create this big, huge reality in your brain. And what she had done is just, she replayed it so often and so vividly, because she used her imaginative mind, that she she couldn't get past it, because she couldn't get that image out of her head anymore. Mm. And when we get to that point is when we do need to probably get a bit of help, some counseling, to figure out how we're going to rewire our brain. Because if we play this over and over and over, we are just putting something in our brain and we're giving it more emphasis than it actually had in reality Mm. in terms of frequency and so forth. So that might be one thing that could be going on. And then obviously, as soon as there's infidelity, there's trust issues. Mm. And the question would be, is there something else going on in the relationship where that trust is not being repaired? What would be the process for trying to, to heal that trust break that's taken place? Yeah. yeah. One of the things that popped up for me about that that ties into that, Sue, is we don't know from this vignette, but is the husband perhaps still doing anything that might make the wife still have fears about that happening again? Like, is he looking at other women? Is he unaccountable for some of his time? And all those things tie to rebuilding trust. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like it might be reasonable that she hasn't been able to let it go if there's anything that's going on now that even looks like the possibility of it happening again. Sure. Yep. But if he's not doing any of that, then it tilts for me to just the, the difficult work of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they've seen a counselor on this or not, but if their, their natural relating over time just hasn't brought this to resolve, I would definitely encourage them to see a counselor specifically to help with the issue of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately what forgiveness in this instance would be, and in every instance really is, um, her working through a process of really facing what happened, being able to express all of her thoughts and feelings about that. Um, sometimes Christians jump too quickly to thinking they're forgiving by saying, I forgive you, but they really haven't done the deep work of the anger and the sadness and the loss and the threat. 
that really is necessary to process through and communicate so that letting go is possible. But the goal of forgiveness then is to ultimately bring her to the place where, assuming there's not any ongoing you know, uh, infidelities or, or tendencies, that she would be able to actually let go, release him of what happened, let it go, retrain her brain, yep. and, then, and then move on. But they'll probably need help for that. And just uh, one thought. I just recently was given a book that I read called um, when, when Sorry Isn't Enough by Gary yeah, Chapman. Great. I don't know if you've seen it. No, um, Christian, <laughs> Christian author. Yeah. Uh, and he's talking about what happens when you say you're sorry and that doesn't solve the problem. Mm. Yeah. So I'm assuming this person is repentant based on the letter sure. and it's not enough. So this yeah. book, it's very short. It's a quick read, but mm. I think he's got some really good tips yeah. in a whole bunch of varieties of when sorry isn't enough. What do you do for that next step to solve it? Uh, also, on taking authority over what goes on in your brain, being able yeah. to change the pictures that keep popping up and reframing that. Uh, there's a book out there that I did with L. Larson called uh, Escaping the Matrix. Yeah. And uh, you might want to take a crack that. at that. Closing uh, word, Kevin. Yeah, just we, through all these um, services this weekend, we, you know, there was a bunch of uh, these folks that wrote letters. We thank you. Thank you for your courage and yeah, taking thank the time. thank you very much. But we know we were only able to touch on just very minimally what's really going on, and you probably need a lot more help, a lot more ideas. And so for any of the folks that sent in the letters or any of you who can relate to any of these letters, um, but the, what we've shared wasn't enough to really make a difference. We have awesome resources available. Our care ministry, um, we have a professional counseling referral list that's on the website, um, or, all, or you could call the care ministry and get that information. We have a lay counseling ministry here um, for, with awesome, well-trained counselors that can help with lots of these kinds of issues. We have the refuge ministry with support groups that are available to help with a lot of these things, as well as our prayer ministry, including folks that will be up here at the altar in a few minutes just to pray with any of you who are dealing with these kinds of issues. So the information on the care ministry is in the bulletin, otherwise on the website, and uh, folks would love to help you. I love this Oprah way of preaching. I, I think this is, this is just fun. This is like... <laughs> it's great. All right. Uh, would you just stand? I'll just close in prayer where the prayer teams come up here. And as Kevin said, they're available. If you have any need whatsoever, they could use prayer. But uh, Abba Father, as we leave this place, I pray, Lord, we do it uh, with submitted hearts to you, uh, with a desire to be kingdom people in all of our relationships. Pour out your wisdom. Uh, call to remembrance whatever we're supposed to remember about these discussions we've had and that apply to our lives. Uh, give us a Jesus heart as we deal with situations that maybe could trigger us and want us to come over and ex- impose our will on, on people. Uh, give us humble Jesus hearts that look first to ourselves and say, how have we contributed to this? Uh, pour your love in us and through us out to this world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name and all God's well-related people said. Amen. God bless you guys. Go and love on the world.